I'm glad to be here with you this morning. We had a great trip to Houston, really enjoyed uh, the time that we spent there, got to hear a lot of good teaching about fathers, some of it uh, maybe a little late for me. I uh, have done most of that raising the kids in my life. Jesus here through his brother James, James was the brother of Jesus. Jesus teaches us some things through his brother that I believe are critical and important to us. And so I want to talk to you this morning about this topic of favoritism and faith. Is it okay to play favorites? We've got some doing this and some doing this and some doing, well, well, he talks about favoritism and faith here, and he says this, brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. What does that mean? Don't hold the faith of our Lord with partiality. What is partiality? What does it mean to show partiality? someone. Well, you know, that's a, that's a common phrase that has a lot of synonyms, and I want to share with you just a few of those words that are common synonyms. One is favoritism. That's why I titled it favoritism. Another one is discrimination. You know what discrimination is, don't you? It's when you choose to like or dislike somebody based on some external circumstances and you discriminate. You don't treat, treat people the same. You don't treat them fairly or equally. That's what discrimination is. There's the word bias. Bias means you've decided before you get there. You're biased before you ever come to something. For instance, if you are religious or if you're politically conservative and there's going to be a debate between a liberal and a conservative, you're to come to that debate probably biased before you get there, right? When I was a very young man, there used to be a lot of religious debates. Okay, some of you may remember some of those. I went to very few of them because that was kind of going away when I was a young man. But one of the things that I saw at those debates is the people who agreed with this guy just got louder and louder in their agreement with him and people who agreed with that guy got louder because they were biased when they came. Now, I'm not saying they never changed anyone's minds. But by and large, people who came were already biased. They'd already decided what they believed when they arrived and they just wanted their guy to show the other guy. Not always, but that's the way it happened a lot. Prejudice. Now, prejudice means to prejudge. That's what it means. It means I judge before I get there. I judge before I hear. Now, we know the Bible says he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame. But we do that sometimes, don't we? We prejudge situations. I've been guilty of that. People call me for counseling. And I say, well, what's going on? And they tell me a little bit about it. And then I get there and I've already decided. And then I find out whether well, stuff I didn't know. You know. It's a problem to prejudge. Prejudice is not a good thing. In other words, bigotry, that's an ugly one, isn't it? I mean, that's one none of us want to have applied to us. You're a bigot. Another word is preference. That one's not quite so offensive, you know. I have my preferences. You have your preferences. I just prefer to be with people who are like this instead of people who are like that. And you prefer something different. 
preference isn't quite as effective. It's the same idea. Inequality, it's when the playing field is not level. When I treat you different, either good or bad, because of some decision that I've made that doesn't have anything to do with the quality of what you do. Now, in America, we've got all kinds of anti-discrimination laws, don't we? Okay. Some of you guys, like Yancey, I know his company has to go through all kinds of hoops to make sure they're not discriminating based on race or creed or religion or all kinds of different things that you got to make sure that when two guys apply for a job, you don't say, well, I'm going to give it to this guy because he's a member of the Church of Christ and that guy's a Baptist, so I'm going to give the job to this guy. You can't do that. You have to make those decisions based on merit. You know, favoritism, prejudice, is something that has uh, existed for years and years and years. And the Bible tells us in this verse, for us as Christians, do not hold the faith of God with His prejudice. Do not be partial in the way that you deal with and treat other people if you hold the faith of God. Why? Why does that matter? Why do you think that makes any difference at all? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. Because we want to be like God, right? Don't we claim we're Christians like Christ? We want to be like God. And when you're like God, did you know that God doesn't show partiality? Look at this. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. God doesn't show partiality. Do you know who wrote this? The Apostle Peter wrote this. He said this. You know about Peter? Peter was a racist. He was. He split a church over racism even after he was an apostle. Because those people are Gentiles, they're not Jews. And he withdrew from them and wouldn't eat with those people over racial issues, not only racial, but primarily racial issues. They were not Jewish. And because they were not Jewish, he rejected them. That's the guy who wrote this. You see, he knew, he understood what had happened here is this man had been up on a rooftop and he was hungry and he saw a vision from God. And this vision, this big sheet came down out of heaven and it was filled with all kinds of animals. And God said, Arise, Peter, go, kill and eat. And he said, Not so, Lord. He said, I won't do that because a lot of those are unclean. And according to the law of Moses, you couldn't eat pigs and camels and there's a lot of stuff you couldn't eat that was unclean. And he said, I've never eaten anything unclean. And Jesus said, what I've called clean, don't you call them unclean. That happened three times. And then, you know what happened? People knocked on the door and asked for Peter and invited this racist to go teach the gospel to a Gentile. And when he got there, he said, you know what? I perceive... <laughs> This is strange, but I figured this out. That God doesn't have partiality to people. That in any nation, anyone, anywhere who fears God and works righteousness is accepted by Him. That was strange to Peter. But it was true. 
And Peter had to learn that message. You see, Peter learned a truth that day that the church was not just a Jewish sect. You know, early on, everyone who was a Christian were Jews. Jesus said he came first to the house of Israel, right? All, I mean, everyone was a Jew to start with. But Jesus was teaching Peter at this point that the church is not just one group. It's not just one race. It's not just one, one identified group of people. But instead, the church is like this. God's people are like that. Now, I, I don't know these people. I just got that picture off the Internet. I don't know if any of those are God's people or not. But God's people are like that. They're tall and short and fat and skinny. They're black or white or... I don't know what you call what the correct political terms are, so I'm not going to go any further. I just say this, that no one is excluded. And the problem that you and I have when we have partiality is I look at someone and I judge them based on some external circumstance... You know what I'm going to end up doing is calling someone unclean that God has called clean. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to call someone unclean if God has called them clean. That's what Peter was being told. Because Peter looked at these Gentiles and they're unclean. They're the unwashed masses. They're unclean. And God says, don't you do that. Don't you call them unclean if I've called them clean. And then what James does in this is James gives a test case for partiality. Because his big idea, his big argument is partiality. So what is the perfect test case for that? Well, it could be racial, but he has an even broader test case that applies in any culture, in any setting, in any race. And that is the test case of wealth. He says you got rich people and you got poor people. You know, there's rich people and poor people in every country. I go to Nigeria and most of those people are dirt poor, but some people are filthy, stinking rich over there. I mean, there's some incredibly wealthy people in Nigeria. So wealthy, in fact, the big thing now is for the really wealthy to show off their wealth, order pizza from Britain and have it delivered on British Airways to Nigeria. Is that crazy? incredibly wealthy people. There's everywhere in the world, there's wealthy and poor people. So we look at that. This is his test case. How do you react to people differently based on their wealth? Do you react differently? Do you have kinder feelings towards some people than others based on their circumstances of life? What if we had... These people show that's a pretty nice place, isn't it? I wouldn't mind living in a house like that. That'd be a nice place to live. Drive a nice car. I don't know uh, if those are even... Are they still make those Escalades? Those are nice. Wouldn't it be nice to have a young, fine young couple like that in the church? They show up to visit some Sunday morning. Now, obviously, if they had dollar signs on their head, we'd probably go, hmm, that's strange. But I mean, really, you look at a young couple like that and you go, man, they would be a good addition to this church. I mean, wouldn't we like to have a fine, successful, capable young couple like that? 
They come in here and we smile and shake hands. You go visit with them and you'd be comfortable sitting around that table and I'm sure she'd have her, her iced lemonade and all. I mean, everything would be just perfect and uh, man, that'd be great, wouldn't it? You know what? There wouldn't be a thing in the world wrong with having this young couple in the church. I think it'd be great. The problem comes in when if this young couple showed up and the next Sunday we had a different young couple that show up. And this young couple lives there. And they drive this. And they look like this. Would you treat them different? What's your reaction to that? I'm being honest when I look at that. You know, you have a tendency sometimes to prejudge, don't you? You have a tendency sometimes to let the stuff surrounding the people affect the way you treat the people. That's just the reality of the world that we live in. You know, when we get ready to go to Nigeria, it takes quite a bit of money to, take, to make that trip, okay? It costs a lot of money to make that trip. And when, on the years that I go, I coordinate our trip, and I plan the trip, and I pay for everything. And so a fair amount of money moves through my account at the bank, and we just took that trip. And so I would go in and I would put money in my account and I would pay these, these different things from my account, pay for the airplane tickets and the hotels in Nigeria and, and a lot of the, the security expenses and stuff like that. Well, you know, I started going in real regular and I started putting pretty decent sums of money in my account and all of a sudden... Every time now I go to the bank, as soon as I open that door, the girl standing back, she smiles like, Hello, Mr. McCorkle! <laughs> you know, before that, I'd walk in, she'd go, Next. <laughs> it's different. People in America, and all over the world, it's not just in America, react differently to other folks because of the stuff that they have, the stuff that surrounds them. And that doesn't have anything to do with the person. Would you prefer one of those couples over the other? Would you, looking at, at these two couples, spend more time when you went to visit them than you would when you went to visit them? Would you be more likely to invite them over for supper or them out to eat with you than you would be to invite them for supper or out to eat? I mean, if the character was the same, if the faith was the same, if the behavior wasn't any Christian-wise better or worse, here's what James said. James said, listen, my beloved brethren, God has not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, or has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. I see these people on TV, and you can see like 
when the red carpet happens and they have these these big celebrations and they have the Emmys or the Grammys or the Academy Awards or all these different awards and people come, football players and stuff like that, and people just swarm around these people. And I mean Christians, I know they're Christians that would give their eye teeth to get to sit on the front row for George Strait or, you know, and they'll just stand and yell and, and just almost worship these people. And these people with all this money and with all these things and with all this power in the world are the ones who are pushing the agendas. I'm not saying George Strait pushes this agenda. I don't know about George Strait. But it's people in those positions in this world who push the agendas that are making it dangerous for Christians in America. That are saying things that make Christians targets in America. I do know one, it's Taylor Swift, and I don't know much about her, but I'd, every time I see something in the news about her, it's stuff about things she's saying that are anti-Christian and pro... anti-Christian, I don't know how you say that. I mean, she's against everything we stand for. And yet people just swoon around them. And that's what James is talking about here. He's saying there are people who have all the things in this world and if, if Taylor Swift showed up for church this morning, would we treat her any different than we would that other couple? I dare say probably some folks would. There's a congregation in Oklahoma and one of the uh, OU football players who was a Heisman Trophy winner went to church there one Sunday. He had some relatives that went to church there and he went to church there. And he went to church the next Sunday and he went to church the next Sunday. But you know what happened? And I don't know if this is the reason he stopped, but guess what all the kids wanted to do? They all wanted to gather around him as soon as church was over and everybody wants to get an autograph and everybody wants to get... The guy's at church. He's just a football player. He's not any different than anyone else. But when we treat him different, he says, that's wrong. You see, the Bible tells us that the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God, he looks at the heart. And here's what James says about describing that. He says, if you show partiality, you commit sin. If you're he said, you, if you show partiality and treat people different based on external circumstances, that's sin. That's not just, well, you know, I have a weakness in that area. It's not just, well, yeah, I know it'd be... Uh, well, it's sin to do that. Now listen, we live in a uh, melting pot. America's been known as a melting pot, right? Because people from all over the world come here. And I'm not talking about immigration and legal and illegal and all of that. That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about how we treat other human beings. You see somebody, I tell you what, you go to the mall near us and I see lots of people who are different than me. Lots, I see lots of women walking around that have a dot on their forehead. Do you treat people different because they have a dot on their forehead? Really? So that's sin. It's wrong to treat people different. 
based on external circumstances. That's what James is teaching here. He says, you're convicted by the law as transgressors, for whoever shall keep the whole on yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. Now the book of James here, James has a tendency to write kind of like Proverbs, and he jumps around to different topics. And all. But this chapter... Even though it, it initially seems different, seems almost like it's two halves of a chapter, I think he's talking about the same thing. He says, if you do this, you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. Look at what he goes ahead and says. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And his argument is this. As standing before God, you and I stand before his law like this. If it breaks, it breaks. Period. If you don't commit adultery, you'd never cheat on your spouse. If you don't commit murder, you'd never do that. But you stand and you hold the faith of Jesus Christ with partiality. You're convicted by the law of God as a lawbreaker. It's sin. And when once, it's like this tempered glass. You know, you don't just get a chip in. It just, when it breaks, it just shatters all over. And he said, that's the way the law of God is. And so you're no better, you stand no higher than a murderer or an adulterer if when you look at other people and you deal with other people, you respond to them with partiality. It's the same thing. Look at how he said it in the book of Leviticus. He said, you shall do no injustice in judgment. That means you be completely just in your judgment. That's hard to do, isn't it? I mean, when I hear of a situation and somebody does something, I go, well, they shouldn't have done that because you know what? This and this and this. And I get to going about all kinds of stuff. I have no idea why they did what they did. It just, I have my opinions. And sometimes I find out later that my opinion was wrong. But there were circumstances in that situation that I didn't know anything about. And because I didn't know anything about those circumstances, I judged someone very harshly for doing something that I probably would have done in that very same circumstance. But you see, we don't know. He says there should be no injustice. We should be completely fair in our judgment. That's a good idea, right? But the, the writer here, Moses, he didn't leave it at that. You know what he did? He went ahead and made a specific application to that. He said, You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. You know, partiality goes both ways. Judgment before a situation goes a lot of different directions. There are people who hate black people because they're black, and there are people who hate white people because they're white. And it goes both ways, and it's wrong both ways. There are people who would prefer those folks over them. Did you know that? It's not just some people who prefer the rich over the poor. There are some people who give preference to people because they're not rich and they hate people who are rich. That's wrong. There are some people who hate people because they're poor. That's wrong. 
He says you apply the same standard just like God does to you. It doesn't matter what law you break. You're guilty before God if you break a law. God applies the standard the same. So our question is how are we going to live? Are we going to show partiality? Or are we not? Listen, that's a hard, that's a difficult thing for us. I know in my own life, this is a very challenging thing. And James goes ahead and says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. You don't want to be harsh in your judgment. Now, we, we have a tendency to put mercy and judgment on opposite ends of the spectrum. But they're really not opposite ends of the spectrum. You can have judgment and show mercy. You can do that. You know, he says mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you want people to be merciful to you? I have been in spots in my life where I needed mercy from other people. Have you? I mean, have you ever really needed mercy? I have. And I'm going to tell you, when you need mercy... It is a wonderful thing to have mercy. He said, mercy triumphs over judgment. The times in my life when I needed mercy, judgment against me was just. Judgment against me was righteous. I was guilty. But I needed mercy. How do you respond to people? Do you respond with judgment? Or do you respond with mercy? We find a story in the Bible of a young woman who needed mercy one time. I have no doubt the words they used burned her ears when they caught her in the very act of adultery. Now, was she guilty? Yes, she was guilty. What she had done was a terrible thing. It was adultery. Either she or the man she was with were married. They were betraying someone else in a relationship. I mean, it was a bad thing. And they caught her, and they brought her to Jesus. This young preacher who was preaching and teaching. And they drug her before him, and they threw, him, threw her down, and they said, you tell us what to do to her. Moses said, kill her. What would your judgment be? Well, what did the law say? The law said, kill her. And there she was before Jesus. And Jesus looked at her accusers, and he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And they challenged him. And he said, okay, you're right. The law of Moses says to kill her. You who are without sin, cast the first stone. Here you go. Here's a rock. Those of you who have no sin, cast it. The Bible tells us that they began to go away. You know she's laying there in front of him and she hears the and the huffing and the shuffling feet as people turn around to walk away. And then she hears Jesus say, Woman, where are your accusers? And she looks up and they're all gone. Now, Jesus didn't say what you did was okay. What she did wasn't okay. It was wrong. And Jesus said, go your way and don't do that anymore. No more. But Jesus showed mercy on this woman. 
You see, she was guilty, but mercy triumphed over judgment. Jesus had judgment within his hands. Moses did say kill her, but Jesus knew in this circumstance, in this situation, there was a greater thing going on, and Jesus chose mercy over judgment. Do you choose mercy over judgment? Are you merciful with people who fail? Or are you demanding and harsh and stern in your judgment. I'm not saying we shouldn't be stern with obeying the law of God. We should. But here he's teaching in our relationship to other people regardless of external differences. The truth is we are all in the same boat. You may have more stuff than me. You may eat different food than me. You may live in a different kind of house than I do. You may drive a different kind of car than I do. You may root for a different sports team than I do. You may enjoy different habits than I do or different entertainment than I do. But the truth is, we are all in the same boat. And that boat is this. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all done that. We're all in the same place. So for us to withhold mercy from other people who are in the same boat we're in, maybe for a different reason or from a different route, but they're still in the same boat. You see, that's like the old phrase, cutting off your nose to spite your face. You're doing something that's, that's wrong. It's ridiculous. He says this, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Is there anything you can do if you don't have works? Will your faith, will just believing save you? And his answer is, did you know James had a nickname? The brother of Jesus, he, I guess back then they had nicknames like we do today. He had a nickname. It's well recorded in history. His nickname was Old Camel Knees. <laughs> Wouldn't you love that for your nickname? We talk about Carrie, what, what the grandbaby's going to call her, and she wants to be honey, and now they're calling her honey, and we're going, well, do you really want to be granddaddy? My daughter told me, she said, you ought to be bear, so y'all would be honey bear. <laughs> we use nickname. He was old camel knees. Why would you call somebody old camel knees? Well, the reason they called him that is because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer that his knees had calluses all over him. You see, this was a guy who believed in doing instead of just saying. He believed in walking instead of just talking. He says, what does it profit? And he's talking about this relationship of actually living the way Jesus wants us to live in relation to one another. You see, when we look at this, we've got on one hand faith is one of the good works that obligates God to save me. You know, there's some people that believe that. They believe that if I have faith, God is obligated to save me because I've had faith and I do all these good works and faith is just another one of my good works. You've got the other extreme that says we're saved by faith alone and works are irrelevant. You don't have to do anything. I know people who believe both of these things. That it doesn't matter what you do. You live however you want because God loves us and He's going to save us. All the way over to 
God saves me because I have faith. God saves me because I do good things. God is obligated to let me into heaven because I'm keeping some of these rules in his book. And the truth is that neither one of those are right. The truth, as is always the case, is found here in the middle. By grace are you saved through faith. You see, our salvation is through faith. It's not of works that men should boast, but it's a, a faith that is what James calls here a living faith. Now he says this, if you're going to say it and not do it, I'm not saying you don't have faith. I'm just saying your faith is dead. You can believe that God is God and that Jesus Christ is His Son, but if it doesn't affect your life in any way, your faith is dead. Still talking about this same topic. You know what he said in Psalm 50, or 85 rather, he said this, Mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. That's a strange picture, isn't it? Mercy. We tend sometimes to put those at, at opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got mercy over here and you've got truth over here. And you have some people who love truth. And it's all truth and truth is what matters. And truth to the point that we have no mercy on anyone. And other people over on this other extreme, it's all mercy. We just love everybody. Honk if you love Jesus. Doesn't matter what you do. We just... And the truth is, neither one of those extremes is right. Truth matters, and mercy matters. Righteousness matters, but peace also matters. And you see, these meet together. God has always been the kind of God who justified people on the basis of a living faith, not a dead faith. A faith that was alive, a faith that made someone have confidence and live actually in a different way than they lived before. James goes ahead and says this, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? He says, you've got food and someone's hungry and you don't give them any food, but you say, God bless you. Years ago, I used to build fence these six and eight foot privacy fences around people's houses. I worked with Marlon, Jeremy's dad, and we'd have a fence truck and we'd have pickets, thousands of pickets on this fence truck that we were headed somewhere to a job. One day, Marlon was driving, so this isn't surprising that they all fell off, on the side of the road, and we're out there, thousands of pickets on the on the road, side of the road, stopped, and we're picking up all these pickings, putting them back on the truck. And this car drives by, and he slows down. He rolls down his window. He honks. We look up, and he says, God bless you! And it, wham! <laughs> and drove right on. How much good did that do us? Gave me a good illustration. <laughs> That's about all it did. He had a bumper sticker from one of the more well-known churches in town at the time. Did he help us? Didn't help us at all. Now, I'm glad he didn't curse at us, but he didn't help us at all. You see, Christianity is a, Christ, is a lifestyle that makes a difference with people. It, it changes the way I deal with people. 
And that's why he goes ahead and he says this, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is a dead faith. You know, you can talk about Jesus all day long, but if you're not going to do what he says, as far as God's concerned, you're just saying blah, 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 blah. It doesn't mean anything. And so for me to sit and wear my nice... Several people commented on my tie. Carrie picks out nice ties for me, doesn't she? For me to stand here and be dressed nice and wear a beautiful tie and I treat somebody wrong when they walk in this back door based on external circumstances. And he said, you're convicted of the law. It's sin. You're no better than the people who have no faith. Said some people will say, you have faith and I have works. He said, you show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You got faith? This world has, now I will tell you, I think it's changing. I think it's changing. But we've lived in a world, I grew up in a world where most people claimed faith and most people didn't live like it. That's the world I've grown up in. I do think it's changing where the benefit of claiming a faith you don't have is going away and so fewer and fewer people are going to claim that faith. But James's argument here is this. Don't tell me you've got faith if you won't do what God tells you to do. Don't tell me that you're going to live a certain way if you don't live the way that you say you're going to live. James said, show me don't just tell me. You show me by the way you live. He says, you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You know, faith is not just an intellectual exercise. Carrie Jones was telling me about talking to a young man here the other day, and the young man said, well, I believe that there's a God. But I don't go any further than that because I don't. Really? That's not faith. The devil has that kind of faith. The devil knows there's a God. Faith is not just an intellectual, well, I can look at the world and see that there must be a God. Yeah, you can. The fool says in his heart there's no God. It's pretty obvious from life that there's something bigger than life. The devil knows that. You know what else faith isn't? Faith isn't just an emotional response. The devil not only has an intellectual response to God, but he's got an emotional response. Looky there. He trembles. Even the devils believe and tremble. They know there's a God. You have this kind of faith, you're just as good as the devil. But what does he say? He says, but do you know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He said, there's no value in you claiming something that you won't live by. And then going back to his test case, he uses two specific examples. One of an extremely wealthy, well-connected, respected person and one of somebody who's the opposite to explain what real faith is. And that's this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled 
which said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Abraham was an extremely wealthy man. Very, very wealthy. And Abraham was recognized by all as the founder of faith. He is the one the Bible calls the friend of God. No one argued with his faith. You know the story. God told him you're going to have a son. He didn't have a son. God had promised him he'd have a son. So first he adopts his, uh, one of his slaves. God says, no, that's not it. So then he and Sarah cook up this deal and he has a baby with this Egyptian woman, Ishmael, and he thinks that's the son God promised him for a long time. No, that's not it. I said, you and Sarah are going to have a son. So he and Sarah then have a son. There's trouble in the home. God says, kick out that Ishmaelite, uh, that the other family. Kick them out. Send them out. I'll take care of them, but they don't need to be in your home. He's not the son of promise. He said, but this son, I'm going to tell you something about this son. You're going to have more kids and more grandkids and more great-grandkids. It's going to just be like the sand on the seashore. There's going to be so many of them through this boy. So Abraham's got his son of promise and the son's growing up. And then the son gets about 13 years old and God says, Abraham, I want you to load up the boy and I want you to take him to the mountain and sacrifice him. Remember that guy on TV would go, what you talking about? <laughs> that would probably be my reaction. God, you promised don't you remember you promised me that I'd have all these kids and grandkids? If I kill him, I can't have any grandkids. Not Abraham. What the Bible says? The Bible says that early the next morning he saddled up the donkey and he got some firewood and he got his son Isaac and he said, come on boy, we're going to the mountain. And they went. And you know the rest of the story, how he tied up Isaac and he lifted his hand and God stopped him as he took the knife. And you know what God told him? God said to him, Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You see, Abraham had faith, but his faith was made perfect when it was met with works. He didn't just talk it. Abraham walked it. You know, if God's got to raise this boy from the dead to keep his promise, that's God's business. God made a promise. He's going to keep his promise, and I'm going to do what he told me to do. That was Abraham, this man of tremendous wealth, tremendous prestige and power. He was a man of great, great faith. And James recalls that story talking to them about their partiality and he says, don't have partiality. You have the faith of Jesus Christ without partiality. He said your faith has to be alive and he concludes this part of the story by saying, you see then that a man is justified by works and not faith only. It's not good enough to talk the talk. You've got to walk the walk. And then he goes just as far away from that as he can get. Here we've got Abraham, this wealthy founder of the Jewish system, the friend of God. Let's go all the way over here to Jericho and find a nasty old Gentile prostitute. And let me show you her and her faith. 
Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers that sent them out and sent them out another way? You remember Rahab? She's somebody that you would probably not want to invite over for supper. You wouldn't want your kids hanging around a woman like that. She had faith. God's people came and she said, she said, hey, I'm going to hide you and I'll help you because your God is God. Your God is the real God and I want to serve Him. And you know what they told her? They told her this, it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Why? Because she hit them. They told her, they said, you know what? We get out of here, it'll be life for life. Our life for your life. You saved our lives, we'll save your life. You know why she did that? Because she had faith. She believed in the God of Israel. Not to the point that she said, you know what, I better get out of town because these guys are going to kill everybody. That's not what she did. She actively helped the people of God because she believed in their God. That's what she did. Now you look at, he gets down to the end of this chapter and he's got these two polar opposite human beings. One that's got everything in the world and lives in a certain way of righteousness, and another who is someone we would despise, someone that his readers would despise. And he says, you know what? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. That's his argument here. And my message to you today is a twofold message. It's you need to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. You need to really treat people right because you're a Christian. And you make the decisions and you do the things you do because you're a Christian, not because of them. You don't treat people certain ways because of them and what they do. You treat them that way because of you and who you are and the kind of person that God has called you to do. Jesus Himself with His own lips spoke these words about this subject. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, all of you here, those of you that I know well, some of you have just met, but all of you, I like you. You've treated me well. I mean, there's none of you who've treated me real badly. You've treated me good. And as a result, it's easy for me to treat you good. If I see you in the mall, I'm going to go, Hey, how you doing? What's going on? When we went down to the meeting in Houston, we stopped at Bucky's on the way down, and we ran into four or five at Luke and Laura Adair were there. And I saw Luke, and I sneaked up behind him, and I grabbed his hat, and I, hey, Luke, how are you doing? You know why? Because he treats me good, and I treat him good. You know what? Pagans do that to each other. People that have no faith at all do that. Even, you may have heard me mention this before, but even Adolf Hitler had friends. Hitler had friends. People that would come over to the house and hang out. Anyone can be nice to their friends. 
But Christians treat everyone right. Christians have an equal and fair playing field with everyone. Christians don't show partiality. That's not okay because God does not show partiality. And if you show partiality, you're going to call someone unclean that God has called clean. So the big message of James is this. No partiality in God's church. We're all equal and mercy will triumph over judgment. Let's all treat one another with equality regardless of our circumstances. And walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. Are you walking what you talk? Are you living what you claim? Are you doing what you say you believe? I hope you are. Especially in the area of partiality. And if not, you need to make some changes in that. You need to be like Jesus Christ. And if you're not willing to do it, it's sin. And it violates the law of God. As Christians, we don't do that. I call you to mercy. I call you to non-partiality and I call you to living what you talk. If there's a way the church can assist you, you have a matter that needs to be brought before the church, we do offer an invitation song if you'll make that need known while we stand and sing.